0: We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We've been looking at hebrews chapter 12 together and thinking about the primary exhortation in that text and in the book of hebrews in general which is to run the race with endurance so we've been thinking about how might we continue to bear up under and to continue on in the midst of challenge and difficulty which is a part of the life that we've been called to live as christian disciples remember our whole heart and hope is to bear witness to the life of god through our lives and our words And in order to do that well, that's the race that we're running, in order to bear witness well, we are in need of this thing called endurance. And so we've looked over the last few weeks at several principles that have come out of just verses 1, well, really just verse 1 for the last three weeks. Today we'll get to verse 2 in Hebrews 12. And the first was to be encouraged by the faithful, the great cloud of witnesses with which we are surrounded, to be encouraged by the way that they have run well. The second was removing hindrances, every weight and the sin that so easily entangles, or clings so closely, so that we could run without being encumbered by this weight or this sin, by being tripped up. The third, last week, we talked about accepting our course, which is to say that God, in his fatherly discipline and care over us, will often allow things in our lives for the sake of us being formed more and more into his life, to to share in his holiness. And that we are to accept the path, not just to kind of push back and wish we had a different path, but to accept the path, the course that God has given us so that we could run well. And today we come to the, uh, the fourth principle that we're getting out of these first two verses, and it's the key one in verse 2. So open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 with me. We'll be in verses 1 through 4. I'll, I'll, uh, because we did not read them already, I'll read them right now page 1008 in your pew Bible. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Beginning in verse 2, looking to Jesus, that's the fourth principle here, and the key one. To endure, to run with endurance the race that God has set before us, In the face of challenge and difficulty, we are to be looking to Jesus. And the tense of this word here in the Greek is a present tense. means an ongoing, regular, continual action. We are to always be looking to Jesus, which means to direct our attention to him without distraction. To be looking to Jesus in the midst of our running of the race means not to be looking at or focusing on the trials, the hardships, the difficulties, the opposition, That is so easy, though, isn't it? We get consumed by those things. It is natural, the path of least resistance, in the midst of trials and hardships, to endlessly mull them over in our minds, to fret about them, to be consumed by them in such a way that we cannot think about, talk about, dream about, anything other than the trial itself, or the pain that we're experiencing, or the sense of injustice or insult that we're experiencing or we feel. All of us know how easy this is to be looking at the challenge. But this word translated looking here includes this notion of without distraction. Here's how John Owen, the greatest theologian from the Puritans, 17th century, he lived in England, and wrote a seven-volume commentary on the book of Hebrews. He says this, And the word here used to express a looking unto him, as to include a looking off from all other things which might discourage, be discouragements unto us, such are the cross, oppositions, persecutions, mockings, evil examples of apostates, contempt of all these things by the most. Nothing will divert and draw off our minds from discouraging views of these things, but faith and trust in Christ. Look not unto these things in times of suffering, but look unto Christ." Be focused on Jesus. As the NIV translates this word, fixing our eyes on Jesus. What are your eyes fixed on this morning? what's consuming your mind what's taking up all of your discretionary thinking and talking with those that you love is it Jesus or is it the trial two quick ways to show how important this is one is the story we read from Matthew 14. Peter getting out of the boat walking on water to Jesus and you'll remember that key verse verse 30 but when he saw the wind he was afraid And he began to sink and he cried out lord jesus or lord save me he turned his attention to the threat to the difficulty that he was facing to the hardship and he began to sink and this illustrates the danger of looking to the wrong things of fixing our eyes on the wrong things before we knock peter too hard let's remember he had the courage to get out of the boat first of all So we should elevate him in that sense and also when he started to sink he cried out lord save me so he did the right thing there so i don't want to pick on him too much but jesus actually does critique him for his little faith why do you doubt oh you have little faith we need to be focused on jesus when we're in the midst of trial or we'll begin to falter a second way of thinking about this is just think about marriage Um, Every marriage has moments or seasons of conflict and trial. It's easy to kind of get cross-wired with the person that you are in the most intimate of relationships with. And it's a natural tendency just to focus on your spouse and his or her problems and difficulties and shortcomings, which are the real reason that you as a couple are having problems, as you know. But the best way to advise couples in this situation, I find, is to tell them to look to Jesus because when we're looking at jesus then we're not responding to our spouse and his or her shortcomings and they're not responding to us and our shortcomings or sins now there's an element of that that does need to be done i'm not suggesting that doesn't but when we're looking first at jesus and fixing our eyes on him then we're responding to jesus and his love for us which enables us to enter into the marriage relationship and do the right thing or be a presence of humility and grace and forgiveness and reconciliation understanding a tenderness that Jesus provides if we're looking to him versus if we're looking at the challenge. So this is another way of exemplifying this. I remember when our kids were young, and we would take them out to play sports, particularly soccer. The the first few times that any of our kids got on the soccer field, and many of you I'm sure had this experience as well, they'd be out there playing, and routinely they would look over at the sideline. At mom or a dad. Look over at the sideline. It was just this constant looking back to kind of, am I okay? Probably a sense of affirmation, direction, and just comfort in turning and looking. And that's the kind of thing that we are to be as we walk this road or run this race of discipleship is to constantly be looking at Jesus, looking at Jesus. And just to say, to look at Jesus doesn't just mean physical eyesight. We can't see him right now. In fact, faith is described in chapter 11, or God is described as seeing him, at who, seeing him, seeing the one who is invisible. So we can't see him in that way. But when we talk about looking, it's more like what Jesus describes in John chapter 3, in that little reference to the book of Numbers, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. He doesn't say it there, but people looked at the servant to be rescued. So also the Son of Man is to be lifted up. So to, to look at Jesus means that we are believing, and that's what Jesus says there, whoever believes in me will be rescued, like the one who looked at the serpent. So looking to Jesus means yielding to him, trusting him, believing in him, having faith in him, not just seeing him physically. And this is what we are called to as disciples. This is a key principle. And so overarching the rest of our time, just I want you to be thinking about what is it that you are looking at? To whom or to what are you fixing your eyes upon? When we look at Jesus, we'll continue now in our passage, Uh, We see two basic things. First, he's the source and perfecter of the one thing that we need to run well. And then secondly, he is the exemplar of how to live with that one thing, which is faith. So look at at the text. After we're exhorted to be looking to Jesus, then we get a glimpse into who he is and what he's accomplished, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Look at this one, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Owen again so he is the author or beginner of our faith in the efficacious working of it in our hearts by his spirit and the finisher of it in all its effects in liberty peace and joy and all the fruits of it in obedience for without him we can do nothing end quote the faith that we have the faith that we have looked at throughout this series because the author of hebrews spent an entire chapter in chapter 11 Elevating the people who had gone before us, and particularly drawing our attention to their faith, to their grasp upon God and their loose hold upon the things of this world, to their, their clinging to him and trusting in him and looking for and longing for that reward that he would bring. That's what faith was. The conviction of things not seen, the assurance of things hoped for. Jesus is the author or the founder of this faith and its perfecter as well. What an encouragement, then, to be constantly looking over at Jesus, because Jesus is the one who gives us this gift of faith and who brings that faith to full flower in our lives. He is the source of the one thing that we need to run well, which is faith. And so as we're encouraged to look to Jesus, the author of Hebrews brings this up to the foreground here in identifying Jesus as this founder and perfecter of our faith when our faith is diminished and challenged, as it often is in the situations of trial and difficulty, when we look to Jesus, we are looking at the very one who has enabled faith, gives faith, and perfects, matures faith in us, and will sustain our faith to the end. Is there a trial in your life this morning that you are finding all-consuming? and that may be wrapping you up in doubt and despair. Maybe you feel like the father of the boy in Mark 9 who has an unclean spirit, who when Jesus comes off the Mount of Transfiguration, he's so frustrated with his disciples who could do nothing, and he looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief with his son had been going on so long there was seemingly nothing that could be done that he was honest with Jesus about the fact that he struggled to believe look to this one this one who has suffered on your behalf this one who is the perfect sacrifice for sin this one whose self-offering is the reason for your hope and your life and your vitality look to this one, the one who has given you the gift of faith and who can bring that faith and alone can bring that faith to completion look to him However small or diminished your faith may feel this morning, however much you may feel like you're being overwhelmed by doubt and despair, look to this one, who is the source and finisher of what you need to run well. And then the second dimension of looking to Jesus, we get in the rest of verse 2. Take a little bit more time with this. but. And this is really the the heart here the thrust of this section is that jesus is the great exemplar the one who has lived a life of faith the one who has run well and finished well through suffering and trial and difficulty we're exhorted to run with endurance to bear up under trial so we're then called and urged to look to him this one who has run so well And we learn that he endured the cross so we look at the text who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame i'm going to start in the middle and then take the two ends of that little phrase but he endured the cross the great burden as he hung on the cross he hung there under the weight of our sin the burden of our sin the punishment of our sin the pain of our sin not his own but ours there is no agony Like the agony of calvary there is no trial so great as this trial wholly undeserved the punishment wholly unjust upon him and yet taken up in and through love he endured the cross he stayed under this burden he accepted the course that the father had asked him to walk and instead of calling down 12 legions of angels to defend him He yielded up his spirit to the Father. Instead of lashing out in anger toward those who were mocking him and ridiculing him and spitting on him and beating him, you remember what he did? He prayed for them and asked his Father to forgive them because they were acting in ignorance. To say that jesus endured the cross is to say that under the greatest darkness under the greatest weight through the greatest possible trial far greater than anything that we could imagine or even ever live through however great the trials may be that jesus continued to exemplify what i would call the obedience of faith which paul bookends the book of romans with he exemplified the obedience of faith what is endurance endurance is to stay under the mighty hand of god and to react and respond to situations of trial in which we find ourselves in a manner that is pleasing to him when we're faced in those very trials and challenges with the large temptation to not endure to give up our obedience to fall into the Dark back alleys of self-pity, or revenge, or anger, and so on. The temptation is to crumble under the weight of our trials, to turn to the ways of the flesh, and give up the ways of the Spirit. And Jesus doesn't do this, does he? He bears up. He bears up under the greatest trial imaginable, enduring the cross. He remains under, in this trial of the cross, being faithful to the end. And we are to look to him who endured. We might ask them, well, how did he endure? And the text gives us a couple of insights into how he endured, which might help us as we bear up under our own trials in looking to Jesus. And the first thing we see is um, for the joy that was set before him. What was this joy, we might ask? One dimension of it we see, actually, in John chapter 12, when his hour, the Gospel of John, is structured around the hour for which he came. And when the hour comes, Jesus says this in John 12, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. In other words, The first dimension of the joy that was set before him is to glorify his father to bring glory to his father in and through the cross jesus knew that in going to the cross he would be showing the world the nature of his father he would be putting god's steadfast love and mercy on display for all to see and exhibiting to the world the character of its creator in and through this moment of his great agony remembering this knowing this understanding the joy of this, this is what gave him the ability to endure. He saw this joy of glorifying his Father that was set before him. And the second dimension of his joy is his salvation of the people of God, the rescue of the lost. He says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. And he lays his life down for us actually out of a deep, yes, obedience to the Father, love for the Father, but also a deep love for us. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, 1 John 3. And this joy of rescuing a people, of gathering and going out and finding that one lost sheep, of being the father who's going to the edge of town looking for his son to come back home, this is what marks the character of Jesus and the character of our father. And this is what gives Jesus tremendous joy in the work that he's doing. It is to rescue a people. That he deeply loves. And we read in this text that this joy was set before him. And you might say, well, how was the joy of glorifying his Father and rescuing a people, how was this joy set before him? And I would say it was set before him in the eternal counsel of the will of the triune God from all eternity. Jesus is there, the eternal Son of God with the Father and the Spirit, and understands the nature of what God intends to do to rescue his creation. And this joy is set before him for all eternity past. And yet it is also set before him in the prophets, the prophecies and promises that are declared throughout the scriptures leading up to the time of Jesus' incarnation. So many of these words that God had spoken through the inspiration of his spirit would guide and direct Jesus as he ministered to others and walked to the cross. Think about, for example, in Hebrews 10. The author of Hebrews picks up Psalm 40 and puts it on the lips of Jesus. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Remember when Jesus said he could call down the twelve legions of angels in Matthew 26, he then immediately says, in saying he wouldn't do this, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? This joy of being the Savior, which is what his name means, God saves. This joy of glorifying his Father, this was set before him in the promises and prophecies that had come up to this time, and they informed Jesus as he stepped further and further on the path of obedience under his Father. What is our joy in the midst of trial? I would submit to you that it is this, as those whose joy is found deeply in belonging to the triune God and being part of his family— Of those who have had our sins forgiven those who have been washed as white as snow those who've been given a purpose and a community and a belonging and a sense of direction in our lives all that we've been blessed with by god all of that is is then turned and, and moved in the direction of using our lives to glorify our our god the joy that we have in the midst of our trials and challenges and difficulties, is that as we walk through them as his faithful servants and soldiers to the end of our days, that God would be honored and glorified through our lives. And this gives us tremendous joy. E. Stanley Jones was a Methodist missionary to India in the early 20th century. And in his book, Christ at the Round Table, he writes this. He says, what are we to say in regard to these evils that come upon us from without? Evils, which are not the result of our own choosing. And this is some of what we've been talking about over this series, isn't it? And then he says, Stoics, well, they tell us to be unflappable. Buddhists, they say it's a part of existence, so the answer is to escape existence. Hindus, these are the deeds of a previous life, therefore eat the fruit and bear it. But Jesus, Jesus tells us that you are to find your finest opportunity for witnessing through these very troubles. In other words, you are not to bear your calamities, Jones says, you are to use them. You are to turn your trials to a testimony. Because in that testimony, God would be glorified and honored—the God who has given you everything that you love and enjoy, all of the benefits of his life. Perhaps the best illustration of this is Stephen. One of the first deacons of the church acts chapter 6 chosen filled with the spirit a mighty preacher doing works of power but then he's dragged before the authorities and what does he do all of acts chapter 7 it's a long chapter it takes a while to read through it but all of acts 7 is stephen bearing witness in this moment of his trial to give glory to his father and the son And then as they finish and they get angry and they grind their teeth at him, they grab him to stone him. And you might remember in the text at the end of Acts 7, he actually embodies what we're exhorted to here. He looks up into the heavens filled with the Spirit. And what does he see? He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He bears up under trial and uses it as an opportunity to bear witness. And this is his great joy and his lasting legacy and testimony to us. I would submit to you that our joy in the midst of trials, when we know who we are in Jesus, is to bear witness to the glory of our King. By remaining on that path of fidelity and obedience as we walk by faith enduring under trial suffering faithfully refusing to take up the ways of the flesh persisting despite years and years of challenge and pain as is the case in johnny erickson tata as we mentioned last week and so many others this brings tremendous glory to god in his commentary on second corinthians scott hafman a new testament scholar who used to be here at gordon conwell writes this god is glorified in our lives not primarily by, by performing miracles but by enabling us to persevere because of our trust in him as the one who raises the dead. This is not to say that God doesn't receive great glory when he does perform miracles, and some of you have probably experienced this in your lives. But it is to say, I think what Hafen's pointing to is that empirically, as we look at 2,000 years of Christian history and the covenant people of God in the Old Covenant, the primary way in which God is magnified and glorified through our lives is not necessarily in removing us from the hard trials and situations, but is giving us the strength in the midst of them to bear up under them infidelity to him in such a way that he receives glory and honor. It's the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like, you can throw us into the fire, Nebuchadnezzar, but even if, our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, but if not, we're not going to bow down. And they give glory to God as they bear up under this trial. And this is our joy. So Jesus bears up by seeing the joy that's set before him, and we need that same reality in our own lives as well. But there's a second thing that he does here in our text as well, which is After we read that he endured the cross what does it say despising the shame and this word for despising means that he he accords to shame little value or he treats it of no account some translations use scorning the shame shame is the weapon of our enemy and there is perhaps no greater shame than the shame that jesus endured on the cross Crucifixion was a manner of execution that was meant to dehumanize its victims. To portray them in plain view, naked, shameful, defeated, broken, weak, gasping for breath, seen to be a fraud. You are, if you're on the cross, you are what all those around you are mocking you and saying that you are. They're reviling you. And what the author of Hebrews says is that jesus as he hung there on the cross a key for his enduring in that posture of yieldedness to his father was that he despised the shame the temptation from shame is this for jesus that he would either cower and walk away from the cross and let's not think for a moment that he couldn't just like in luke 4 when he goes just walks through the crowd that wanted to throw him over the, the cliff could have walked away just silently kind of disappeared or his temptation is that he would call down 12 legions of angels to show everybody who's boss and to demonstrate that he is who he was being mocked to be and said that he was not he is the king of Israel that was the temptation in the shame that the enemy was pointing at him They were reviling him. He saves others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. But for Jesus to cave into this shame that he was experiencing, to give it weight, to consider it of great account in his life, and then to make decisions based upon that shame, would have meant either in a weak sense or in a strong sense to step off the path of faith. It would have meant coming out from under, the yielded posture that he was in toward his Father and his will. And Jesus avoids this temptation in either the weak direction or the strong direction by despising the shame. I wonder where, if you are in a present trial, that you are being loaded up with shame. Maybe it is with a besetting sin, and the devil just keeps holding you there and saying to you, See, this is who you are. You're not really a sincere disciple of Jesus. You're a failure. Go ahead, just give up. Or maybe it's more like this. See, you've made these mistakes in your life. You've been put on the wrong trajectory, and it's just too late. You've squandered too much of who you are, and you really can't recover at this point, so you should just be ashamed of yourself. These can be very deep waters in our minds and hearts and souls. Let's not discount the power of shame to keep us from walking in fidelity to our king. This text says to endure, to stay on the path of obedience in the midst of trial. Jesus, our great exemplar, despised the shame. And let me encourage each of you to despise the shame that the devil is throwing upon your life, whatever it may be. That you might be empowered by his spirit to continue to walk as his son or daughter faithful soldier and servant to the end of your days then we see the results so he endures the cross by the looking at the joy in front of him and despising the shame and then we read he's seated at the right hand of the throne of god and this encourages us in two ways as we continue to look to jesus First, we're emboldened by his example that to maintain our posture of faithfulness to the Father in the moment of trial is to see where that leads. It leads to that acclamation, well done, good and faithful servant. It leads Jesus to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God in glory. It leads us to enjoy and share with him in that glory. And when we look to Jesus, we look at one who was in the mire and the muck and the difficulty and the hardship, and yet who stayed under the burden of his Father's will, under the love of his Father for him, in love for us, in love for his neighbor, and out of that was raised up to this place of tremendous glory and honor. We know that there will be vindication for the people of God. We just don't know when it will come, and it may not come as quickly as we would like or in the manner that we would like. It may not come before others in our lives. It may not come in this lifetime i remember joseph son a romanian pastor describing the concept of stolen martyrdom when they would martyr a christian pastor and then spread lies about his character in the community in which he served so that all of his flock would think that he was just a fraud and as he confronted that possibility he had to ask is jesus enough he is our true audience And this will come for those who continue to walk and bear up under this trial. We see that Jesus is in glory, and we are encouraged to stay, to resist the temptation to come out, to stay under the trial, and to let it be God's fatherly discipline in refining us and growing us into his image. But we're also encouraged by the fact that the one to whom we are continually looking as we walk and run this race is actually at the right hand of the throne of god in the throne room of the cosmos with power and authority and might and love and mercy and forgiveness he is not somehow handcuffed he's not incapable but he's in the place of power in this cosmos and he cares for you and he knows you and he is in the words of hebrews your faithful and merciful high priest who always lives to make intercession for you and that's tremendously encouraging to us as well he is present active and able to sustain us through and he can be trusted so be encouraged as you look to him couple final thoughts verse three kind of reiterates the exhortation consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself why this is the why the answer to the why question why do we look to jesus why do we consider him so that You may not grow weary or faint-hearted that is the great temptation is it not in the midst of trial as we are running the race it is to grow weary to become faint of heart of soul and to lose our nerve in the midst of the trials we often can become weary and we can suffer a, a lack of vitality and strength and persistence and if we dwell and turn our attention like Peter did on in the water to the trials themselves, and we start to look there and focus there, these trials have a very strong tendency to steal our joy, to sap our strength, even to cover us with shame and to cause us to want to give up. So we're urged to consider him. This one who was the great exemplar. Who bore up under trial as a deep needed source of encouragement and strengthening in the heart that we might continue to run well and then there's this final push in verse four which basically and again this isn't the the way that we tend to give advice today but basically he says toughen up in verse four in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood i remember when i was uh, early in the early years of planning a church and things were pretty challenging and i was pretty discouraged i called a mentor of mine uh, who just died this past summer from pancreatic cancer and I miss him greatly and I, I called him just looking for encouragement and he just said don't worry Mark it's going to get worse <laughs> <laughs> and there's a sense in which that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here in verse 4. he's saying look you're struggling they were struggling remember in chapter 10 they, we read that they they accepted the plundering of their possessions this was challenging they were living under a state of trial and what he says is look you haven't in your struggle against sin and your fight against sin and all of evil you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood what is the what is the way the father uses these trials in our lives again it's to to deepen our grasp upon him and to loosen our grip upon the things of this world that often get into the soul and start to become the weights and the sin that clings so closely that hold us back from running well And in part, what the author of Hebrews is saying, you're struggling in some ways, but you might be asked to struggle in the greatest way. You might be asked, like Stephen, like Jesus, you might be asked to even surrender your life. There's this wonderful moment in Revelation chapter 12, which is a book that's all about enduring under trial. And the key to that book is about overcoming. To the one who overcomes is the refrain in chapters 2 and chapter 3. Well, then in chapter 12, we get this little moment where it says that they have conquered to overcome or to conquer it's the same greek word they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and then this little phrase for they loved not their lives even unto death and this is i think the the kind of central dimension of the faith that we hold as christians it is a faith in the god who raises the dead which is why the earliest christians were known for not being afraid to die And if you're not afraid to die, then maybe you're not afraid to start letting go of those things upon which it's so easy to grasp. And that's what he's saying. Look to Jesus, source and perfecter of your faith, and the great exemplar who shows you and me what it is like to bear up under trial, anticipating the joy, looking forward to it, and despising the devil and his shame. That you might stay under your Father's loving discipline and glorify him, which is your and my great joy. Let's run with endurance, the race marked out for us. Let's pray. God, we are so in need of you. And I do pray specifically for each one of us. You know our circumstances and our lives. And we pray, I pray, that you would give to each one deeper faith and trust in you. And that today and for this week, that you would take our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, And that you would fix them upon your son. It's so easy, Lord, for us to get distracted. And then to lose our way. And we thank you for this encouragement in your word. To bring our eyes back to you. Grant us this grace, we pray. We long to run the race well. For your glory. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name.